psychiatrists. Uh, on my immediate right here is the uh, is Lord John Allardyce, who uh, is now, uh, uh, I think, leader of the Lib Dem, uh, Chair. chairman of the Lib Dems in the House of Lords, so he's a very busy man at the moment. Um, he's a long, also a long-standing member of the Alliance Party in Northern Ireland and was the leader of the Alliance Party in the 19... 19- the 80s through the 1990s to 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement was made and played a leading role in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement and indeed was then Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, so knows a few things about uh, um, keeping um, uh, extremes in check. Um, John is also a consultant, a retired consultant psychiatrist and has uh, spent a lot of time in the House of Lords and his activities in the House of Lords in conflict management with uh, particular reference to the Middle East, I think. (coughs) And John will be talking tonight about insurgents. He will be dealing with the insurgents aspect. Um, Deirdre McManus uh, here is a forensic psychiatrist. She is also a clinical lecturer at King's College, London. She is the consultant psychiatrist for the London Trauma Service for Veterans of British British military personnel. And Deirdre has been doing a lot of interesting research over the last few years on the impact of combat on UK military personnel. And she is going to focus on the counterinsurgent aspect of this evening. So Deirdre is going to start us off. Uh, Both speakers will have about 30 minutes. And then we'll have about 30 minutes for questions, and we should finish sometime after it. Deirdre. Okay. So as Jimmy said, um, I really come at this from both a clinical and a research perspective. Um, first of all, I'm a forensic psychiatrist, and I've found over recent years that I'm increasingly coming into contact with men in the criminal justice system who have a history of serving in the armed forces and who have committed quite violent crimes. Um, As a forensic psychiatrist, I'm asked, um, does this relate directly to their combat experiences? And that's not a straightforward question. Um, I need to think about their experiences in combat, but also about the risk factors that they bring with them into the military. And that's what really got me involved in this area of research. So for the past few years, I've been carrying out research at King's Centre for Military Health Research. Now, they set up a cohort study at the beginning of the Iraq War in 2003, and that aimed to look at the impact of deployment on the mental health and well-being and behaviour of military personnel. They've collected a wealth of information about, uh, on about 14,000 um, participants, information about their pre-military experiences, their experiences on deployment and experience of combat, and the impact of combat on their mental health and well-being. So I've been able to use a lot of that data plus additional data from the Ministry of Justice to look at violence and risk factors for violence within this population. Then for the last year, I've been working as a consultant psychiatrist for one of the new trauma services for veterans in London. And from that perspective, I've been able to see the aftermath of their experiences, whether or not that was in Northern Ireland or Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I'm going to draw on these experiences to talk you through the psychology of violence in counterinsurgents, essentially military personnel look at the risk factors, the impact of military training, the impact of the culture of the military, what their experiences on deployment, what impact that might have on their mental health and their risk of then subsequently being violent when they come home. 
And then maybe after that, we'll have some interesting um, comparisons to draw with the insurgent population. This is a quote from the New Statesman. They've been trained in lawlessness, ordered to behave like thugs, and decorated for it. What do you expect? This is a quote from the New Statesman in 1946. And really what I'm highlighting here is just that this, this isn't a new problem. Back after the, the, sec- the Second World War, there were concerns about antisocial behaviour amongst this population as well. But moving forward, these days we're bombarded with reports in the media about violence amongst military personnel. Whether or not that's legitimate violence, this is an image of the Navy SEAL who was killed last week or the week before um, by another ex-US military personnel. Um, And he was very much lauded within US Army um, circles as uh, a hero, uh, very much lauded for his sniper skills. But we're also bombarded with reports of less legitimate violence. And these are just some examples, whether it's the Haditha killings of Iraqi civilians by US Marines. Last year, the Afghan US soldier who went on the rampage and killed 16 Afghan civilians. The outcome of the inquiry into the death of Baha Musa, uh, the Iraqi civilian man who was killed whilst in British custody, um, or even the result of the Savile inquiry um, a few years ago that highlighted, as Lord Savile said, the unjustified killings of civilians in Northern Ireland. But in recent years, a lot has been written about violence in war zones. And some people have tried to take more of a psychological perspective on this. And I've really just highlighted um, a couple of the the more well-known texts in the area. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman um, is a psychologist, but he also served for 24 years uh, in the US Army. And he talks very much about this innate resistance to killing within men and says that this is no different within soldiers, but talks more at length about the techniques used within military training and within modern warfare Um, to enable soldiers to overcome that innate resistance to killing. Joanna Burke's book was a bit more controversial. She took more of a psychodynamic interpretation of that intimate um, experience of killing in war, which granted in modern warfare probably doesn't take place too often these days. Um, But she very much emphasised that the act of killing in war encourages an enjoyment in the act of killing. Um, and that it's not entirely the universally unpleasant experience that perhaps um, Dave Grossman might describe. But increasingly, the interest in violence within a war zone is moving more from the theories of the psychology of it into interest in why these people might be violent when they return home to their home communities. And it's difficult to avoid the media headlines in recent years, whether it's a high-profile murder by an ex-military personnel or just alleging a general rise in violent crime and warning that our prisons are filling up with veterans. Now, what do we know? The implication really here is that this is directly related to their combat experiences. First of all, what do we know that this really is a problem? Data from prisons in the US and the UK both suggest that in actual fact, veterans are less likely to be in prison than people from the general population, but they do form the largest single occupational group in prison, and the veterans who are there are more likely to have been convicted of a violent offence than non-veterans. 
As it stands, this isn't really telling us much about what drives violence within this population. And really, to do that, it's like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. We need to think about pre-military predisposition to violence. What are the risk factors that young recruits bring with them into the military? What's the impact of military training and the culture of violence within the military um, to increase the propensity to violence amongst these young men? What influence do their experiences in deployment have, not only on their mental health, but on the risk of being violent also? Now, of course, the military recruit from the general population, and we know that, depending on pressures on recruitment, the military have historically recruited from areas of higher social deprivation. If we look at the risk factors for violence in the general population, just a quick review, we're looking at younger age, males, lower social class, a higher uh, prevalence of childhood adverse, adverse experiences, lower educational attainment, and of course early antisocial behaviour is the strongest predictor of subsequent antisocial behaviour and violence. So if we bear these in mind, when we think about who the military recruit, and these are quotes from the Deep Cut Inquiry. Um, if any of you aren't familiar or you've forgotten, the Deep Cut Inquiry was commissioned to look into uh, the death of a number of young recruits, young trainees in the military um, in Deep Cut Barracks. And what it highlighted were a number of problematic practices, bullying, unsanctioned um, punishments. But what it also highlighted was the background of a lot of military recruits. And these are some quotes. They come from challenging or have challenging personal lives, and many left school with no qualifications. Some have distressing histories of abuse from a young age. Often absence of a caregiver or parent. And they quoted that on average 47% of recruits into basic training have a deficit of basic skills compared to a national average of 23%. Now it's important to highlight that the military can actually act as a very positive effect. It can be a transition point in many people's lives. And we do know that the vast majority of people who enter the military do well when they leave. We're talking about a subgroup who perhaps come in with problems and don't do so well thereafter. In fact, Simon Wesley, who's sitting over there, was quoted in this report um, as saying that really the military deal with a sector of society that perhaps no other organisation could. So I think we need to, to, to recognise that as well. But some of the work from King Centre for Military Health Research has looked at the background childhood problems of their participants and looked at the impact that they have on their subsequent mental health and their risk of violent behaviour. Now, we asked about a wealth of background childhood problems, and I've just highlighted some. Almost 20% witnessed aggression or fighting between their parents and their household. More than 10% were regularly hit by a parent or caregiver. These are self-report. Almost 16% problems with reading and writing at school. And over a quarter were involved in fights at school and almost 40% were involved in trouble with the police. What we found was that over a quarter of our participants reported six or more of these kind of childhood adverse experiences, as we would call them. And we also find that these sorts of experiences were predictive of later problems with mental health and predictive of risk of violence. Now, over and above 
the kind of recruits that we see entering into the military, we have to think about the impact of modern military training. A lot has been spoken about and written about, about this stern process of socialisation. Young recruits at the age of 16 to 18 are taken in, they're taken away from civilian life as such, and it's described as a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. So they're breaking them down and then they're building them up to be the young, fit soldiers that they need to be to cope with the experiences that they're going to undergo. People have described it as a culture of perhaps necessarily institutionalised aggression. And as I mentioned, the Deep Cut report highlighted some instances of bullying. But in my experience from speaking to my patients, and in general other people do write about, whilst this can be a very difficult experience, those who do survive describe it as a very intense bonding experience, and it gives some of those a sense of belonging who perhaps didn't have that sense of belonging before or may not get that sense of belonging thereafter and that in and of itself can cause problems. Then when we think about on top of the recruits, the military training, what about the experiences that they're exposed to in counterinsurgency operations? Counterinsurgency type of warfare is thought to pose a greater risk to the modern military personnel than perhaps previous types of warfare. You know, unseen enemy lines, not always being able to tell the difference between combatants and civilians. It's understandably a very stressful experience. This slide gives you some idea of the prevalence of a range of combat indices, the kind of experiences that they might have. This is from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, and I'm comparing here the level of combat experience amongst British troops and American troops. In the early years of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was really felt that the British weren't exposed to the same level of combat as the Americans. That has kind of um, rectified, for want of a better word, itself in later years. But you can see there's quite a high prevalence of exposure to coming under attack by mortars and artillery, um, seeing your own side wounded or killed, handling or uh, uncovering human remains. But you can still see that... UK forces don't report the same prevalence of actually shooting in direct combat with the enemy. And, and this will become more relevant when we, talk, when we talk about mental health problems as a result of these experiences. But what impact might these experiences have on their risk of subsequent violent offending? Well, there's been a lot of research that's been done in the, in the United States since after Vietnam right through to the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan that has shown a fairly consistent link between exposure to combat experiences and risk of subsequent violent offending. Those studies that did take into consideration pre-war violence still find that that was the strongest predictor of post-war violence. But up until our work at King's, nobody had done this kind of research in the UK. This was one of our papers that was published last year, and understandably it hit the headlines, but it was really just our preliminary results. We started by looking at self-reported violence amongst deployed personnel to Iraq in the weeks following return from deployment. We found a spike in violence in those weeks following return. A third who reported violence reported that it was against a family member. It was very much clustered within the lower ranks and in the army as opposed to the Navy or the Air Force. 
but overall the strongest predictor of this violence following deployment was a history of antisocial behaviour prior to joining the military. Over and above that, we did find that there was risk associated with being deployed in a combat role and being exposed to an increased number of traumatic events. But we took this a step further because this was just self-report data. We linked up our 14,000 participants with their Ministry of Justice conviction records, which gives us an objective measure of all types of offending. And our results were quite interesting. If we look at lifetime offending, we actually find that a lower proportion of military men committed any offence in their lifetime in comparison to a similarly aged group from the general population. (coughs) And that's probably not that surprising, considering that these are young men who are signing up to the military at the age of 18 or 19, which is a period when they'd be most at risk of offending. But violent offending was overrepresented, especially in the younger age groups. Again, the strongest risk factor for official violent offending was a previous history of violent offending. But over and above that, we wanted to look to see what is the risk associated with being deployed and the experiences that they might have on deployment. This is a graph that compares the change in the rates of violent offending and non-violent offending over time amongst UK deployed personnel. We look at the pre-service period and we compare it after they've signed up to the military but before they're deployed and then post-deployment. Interestingly, in the white column is the non-violent offending. You can see that after they join the military, that decreases a bit. increases a little bit post-deployment but not by that much. So really it looks as if the military is either providing a regime that protects them from non-violent offending or, or is potentially just reducing their opportunity to offend. But look at the red column. We look at violent offending. It increases after they join the military and increases again quite substantially post-deployment. Is this just the pattern of violent offending amongst a subgroup within the military who would have been offending anyway and this is continuing within the military? Or is there something about the military experience and deployment in particular that might increase their risk further? We didn't find an association between deployment and violent offending. But we did find that those who were deployed in a combat role committed more offences following return from deployment. And this is a graph that shows the proportion of the population who violently offended with increasing time since return from deployment. And the red um, line is those who were deployed in a combat role in comparison to the grey line, those who were deployed in a non-combat role. A lot of this increased risk was accounted for by background risk factors. But when we took that into consideration, there was still risk associated with being deployed in a combat role. We find similar results when we looked at levels of exposure to trauma. So again, this graph shows the increasing proportion of the the military population who are violent offenders and how that increases over time since return from deployment. And we can see the red line shows those who have been exposed to a higher level of combat trauma. And you can see that the risk of violence increases according to the level of trauma that was experienced. So if we're showing that combat and traumatic experiences have an effect to increase the risk of violent offending, what might explain that? Well, mental health problems probably explain some of it. 
So let's look at the impact of combat on mental health problems within military personnel. Now what we see within the US troops is quite different from the UK troops. Although the media always highlights PTSD, it's not the only reaction to trauma. People can experience depression, anxiety, PTSD, alcohol and substance misuse problems. And what the Americans see that this graph shows is that the prevalence of these mental health problems increased with increasing time since return from deployment. I have to say we don't see that amongst UK troops. Deployment doesn't have the same impact on mental health problems, but what we do see is that those who are deployed in a combat role report increased symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But mostly it impacts on alcohol use. And alcohol is a problem within the UK military. And in every age group, the prevalence of alcohol misuse is higher in the military than in the general population. It increases post-deployment. But of course, this is something that is part of the culture of the military as well. I guess it's used as a coping mechanism. And certainly within my patients, it's one of the most prevalent problems. Irrespective of the different patterns of mental health problems within US troops in comparison to UK troops, We both find in the US and through my work in the UK that these post-deployment mental health problems are strong predictors of violent behaviour. Another form of violence that is talked about a lot within military populations is suicide. And this could really be considered, rather than an outward expression of violence, an inward expression of violence. We don't have the same level of suicide rates in the UK, but in the US they're climbing. And the Department of Veteran Affairs are very concerned about this. So much so that in the last couple of years, they've put a lot more investment into research into interventions for mental health problems. And one in particular that is a concept that is growing in popularity is the concept of moral injury. Now this, as a concept, is as old as the hills. It's been talked about following ancient battles. But a group of psychologists in the States is really pushing this to try and push the concept of combat-related psychological injury beyond what we conceive to be post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very much predicated on an experience of fear, a life-threatening experience. And what they're trying to say is experiences of killing, perpetration of killing, omission of doing something that you should have perhaps done, or witnessing killing, can be just as psychologically damaging. (coughs) Research in the States have tried to show how killing as a, a, a combat experience is a stronger predictor of subsequent mental health problems. But of course this area of research is very difficult because it's difficult to factor in what somebody's responsibility might have been in that act or lack thereof, how they, what their sense of responsibility might have been how they feel about it in terms of guilt or shame. And increasingly, we're also recognising that it's violence that is on perhaps the fringes of legitimate violence, the killing of women, children, innocent people, that might have a greater impact. A book by Rachel McNair that looks at perpetration-induced traumatic stress, uh, this is a quote from that saying, psychological problems are most acute in veterans who have seen or participated in the killing of defenceless people, especially women and children. From my own anecdotal perspective, 
uh, working at the London Veteran Trauma Service. I see guys who have been deployed from Northern Ireland through to the Falklands right up to the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. I see many who have problems that predate the military. I also see a lot of a great variation in terms of trauma-related mental health problems, depression, anxiety. Because I'm seeing a very select uh, clinical group, I do see a high prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder, although at a population level, that probably isn't as prevalent here as what they see in the States. The most common themes that I see are alcohol problems and anger management problems. These guys describe the difficulty switching off continued sense of, of hyper-arousal, vigilance for threat. And it's easy to see then, with a bit of alcohol, how this could trigger them to react in a violent way. But more than anything, possibly more than the experiences in combat, I see these guys struggling to adjust to life outside of the military, outside of the structure, the discipline, that sense of camaraderie and the sense of belonging, and that many of them are lost after they leave. <coughs> just wanted to make a point, I haven't really talked about the impact of violence on families, and this is something that is increasingly coming to the fore. This is a documentary that was nominated for uh, an Oscar. I haven't seen it, but it highlights it's about uh, domestic violence within uh, US military personnel. It's something we're becoming increasingly aware of here, and something that we know we're going to have to look into. <coughs> And really then, we might want to keep this for future discussion. I was just thinking about areas for future research. So we've looked at risk factors for violence within this population. We've looked at the impact of their military experiences and the culture of the military, the impact of their combat experiences on their risk of being violent, and the impact of mental health problems. In the States, they're starting to do programs where they teach military personnel ethics training um, and they're researching that at the moment to see if that improves uh, I guess, their behaviour, for want of a better word, in the war zone. They're also looking into programs called Battle Mind, which helps military personnel readjust the skills that they learn for the com- combat environment to their home community, so skills of targeted aggression how to make that more appropriate, how to deal with that when they try to reintegrate back into their home communities. And as I've said, we need to do some research into the impact of military personnel mental health problems and violence on families. And that's something that Kings have underway at the moment. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Deirdre. John? I hear the other side of the story. Well, thank you very much indeed, Deirdre. Turn the screen up. Oh no, 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 the projector. Marvellous. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much, Professor uh, for the invitation to come along this evening. The thing that struck me most in listening to Deirdre's presentation is that when you come from the perspective of 
she describes the counterinsurgents or security forces or military personnel. You've got a body of people that the community as a whole regards generally as the good guys and girls, they're mostly guys. They're there to defend us, either here on our own borders, sometimes even within the community, or to go out there and deal with trouble on our behalf. And it's interesting, of course, uh, in the past, most war was about soldiers going off to war, fighting battles, returning or not returning. Increasingly, war is becoming something that visits itself on civilian populations over the last hundred years or so. And that introduces all sorts of other dimensions. But, but broadly speaking, when something goes wrong with the way soldiers behave, either in a war zone or perhaps even more when they come back home, we kind of ask questions as to why that might be. Why, why might they behave in that kind? There must be something wrong. Because these are, these are good guys. And they're going out to do things on our behalf. Maybe things we wouldn't want to do, but they need to be done. So we ask questions. And we have people like Deirdre doing research and coming up with the answers uh, to some of the findings, at least. Explanations are a much more difficult notion. However, when we think about people that we call tonight insurgents, or you might use other words for them, like terrorists or paramilitaries or whatever, the questions we ask are rather different ones, because most people, not everybody, particularly in a place like this, not everybody, but many people say, well, people like that are either bad people or they're crazy people. That's not the perspective you start off from with your own military or police or security forces. You start off from the perspective these are solid, good citizens doing things for us. But when it's terrorists, and I, let me use that term in a non-pejorative, non-moralistic sense, most people start from the perspective that these are bad people because they're doing bad things to us, and we get angry and we get upset and frightened about it. Or they're crazy people because only crazy people would do something like that. So let's start from that perspective and, and, and think a little bit about it. Are these basically just bad people that do bad things? Well, the problem about that is that it doesn't really explain an awful lot. Let me take the situation all three of us come from, which is in Northern Ireland. If you go back to the early 1960s, Northern Ireland was a much more law-abiding place than England. When a murder took place in Northern Ireland, it was a subject of enormous talk and discussion for months and months, because they very rarely happened. Most people wouldn't bother locking the front door of their house, because there wasn't a problem in general terms. It was a remarkably law-abiding community, right across all sections of the community. And then over a period of a few months, certainly not more than a year or two, we moved to a situation where hundreds of people were being killed, where there was no sense of security for people, particularly in urban areas, but in many of the rural areas as well. And, and these things were being inflicted on each other by people that had grown up in the local community. So if you're going to say it's bad people that do this, this is evil, then what happened? Did somebody put something in the water? Was there something? What, how did all of this law-abiding community turn into a whole bunch of bad people doing bad things? And then, after a peace process, the overwhelming majority of these people that had been doing bad things stopped doing bad things. Some of them became government ministers. 
Maybe that's not a very <laughs> impressive description of how good they became. But, but many of them, you know, relatively well settled down. We come back a little bit to that because there are some of the things that Deirdre has described that you'll also see in people who were involved in terrorist activity. But many of them settled down into, you know, relatively normal kinds of lives for their community. Communities were more disturbed. Anyway, I, 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 I mark at that because I say, bad people, it's not really very convincing. Okay, they're crazy people then. I mean, anybody that goes out and does those kinds of things is crazy, clearly. Well, of, of course, you've the same kind of argument. What happened? Did, did, did everybody start going crazy in North Carolina? Well, uh, maybe from this side of the water, you maybe think that's possibly the case. But if you actually look at the individuals, it's not that easy to look because terrorists don't generally come along to psychiatrists to ask for therapy, not while they're doing it. Right? And, and the reason, well, there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons is they're on the run, so they tend not to be available for clinics. One of the other reasons is they are, unaccountably, extremely suspicious that healthcare workers might well take the information and pass on information about them, and so on and so on. However, some do come at a later stage, uh, maybe after they've been involved, they come because they've got various kinds of problems, some of which may be related to what they experienced, some of the kinds of things that Deirdre talks about, uh, some of them things that may be triggered off, and they're quite interesting cases of a few people like that. But, but broadly speaking, you have some people who were a bit disturbed before they became involved. They don't generally stick around very long in terrorist organization. Why? Because any terrorist organization that keeps a bunch of people in it that are mentally ill, either with neurotic disorders or more with psychotic disorders, will break down. It won't survive as a terrorist organization for very long. Because it's quite tough maintaining your organization if you've got a bunch of people that are mentally ill. So you say, well, no, okay, they're not mentally ill. They've got personality disorder. That's the problem. There's a whole bunch of psychopaths. That's quite a popular thing for politicians to say. Well, there's a similar kind of problem. Of course, you do have some people in these organizations who have these sorts of disturbances. Mind you, you also find them in other areas. Business life, and political life, and all sorts of other life, um, and you need some people who are capable criminals if you're going to run a terrorist organisation. Because you see, you can't go to the bank and ask for a mortgage to run a terrorist campaign. They won't give it to you. Actually, the banks won't give you a mortgage for anything much nowadays. But they wouldn't give you. So you've got to find another way of getting the money because it's not massively ex expensive to run a terrorist campaign, but it does cost a bit. And if it goes on for a period of time, you've got to find ways of paying for the keep of the guys who are on the run or doing the various business. So you do have to find a way of getting money. So you have to run something of a criminal enterprise. Now, sometimes that's actually seen as part of the terrorist campaign. In Northern Ireland, for example, the economic war uh, against the British state was seen as part of the Republican campaign. So, for example, there were lots of ways in which you could extort money out of the housing executive or from welfare benefits or from funds that were meant to assist building contractors in the construction industry or smuggling fuel backwards and forwards across the border. There was one, you probably knew the border, it wasn't there always, and, and so it goes through villages and Pauline goes through some people's houses. 
but it certainly went through people's farms. And there was one significant member of the IRA who had very large oil tanks in two of his fields. One field was on one side of the border, and the other field was on the other side of the border. And he had a pipe between these two sets of tanks. And if the petrol was more expensive in the south, he would buy it in the north and ferry it over. Or more likely, it was cheaper in the south, and he would get it in the south, and he would ferry it across. And it was very difficult to catch him because it was perfectly legal to keep uh, diesel or petrol in the tanks. The only thing that was actually illegal was if it was coming through the pipe from north to south. And he did it for years and years and years. And, and the police found it very difficult on either side of the border to catch him. The customs people never even near it because they were too frightened to go anywhere near the border. But the police and the army found it difficult. So the point is you need people who will do these kinds of things. Are they all psychopaths? No, not at all. Because many of these people feel they're doing something for their community. Some of them will come into this kind of thing after a profound emotional reaction because some friend of theirs has been shot or blown up and they feel, you know, the forces of the state aren't protecting me here. Or they may even feel the forces of the state did this to me. In that case... I have to take responsibility for reacting myself. Lots of people took up different kinds of things at home in Northern Ireland. You have David Trimble, for example. Why did he come back into politics? Because he'd been out for a while. And he'll tell you it was because a law lecturer, a guy called Edgar Graham, a very close school friend of mine, was in politics in Northern Ireland. He was lecturing in Law at Queen's University. He was exploring the activities of the paramilitary organisations in extortion. He was following up and getting too close, and they shot him dead just as he came out of a law lecture at Queen's University. And David Trimble says, when that happened to Edgar, and I was one of his colleagues in law, I decided I was going to go back into politics. Something had to be done about this. Well, that was a very good thing, and he ended up getting a Nobel Prize and doing all sorts of very positive things. But some people didn't do that. Billy Hutchison in the UBF, for example, said, I went in because one of my friends got blown up, and I said, the British Army and the RUC are not protecting our people, so we've got to do it ourselves. And so he went into becoming a paramilitary, and he ended up in jail and so on and so on. Now, what that says to us is there's a whole bunch of different kinds of reasons why people come into being terrorists. Some of them may be damaged people. Some of them may have become damaged because of their experiences in the terrorist organization. I'll uh, do these slides. Some of them are people who indeed have disturbances of personality or are criminals. But, you know, even when it came to criminality, there are certain types of criminality in a place like Northern Ireland that aren't really regarded as terribly bad. And, and so the idea that these are all psychopaths, that doesn't fit either. So there are lots of different reasons why people get involved. So, first of all, the question, are they bad? That doesn't seem to fit. Are they crazy? Are they mad? That doesn't really fit terribly well. So... How are we to try to understand this? Because clearly, if you live in a stable society, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Ah, see some people. What it is, is there are the godfathers of violence. And these are bad people. And they're a bit crazy. And they lead these young, deluded people into all sorts of terrible behaviors. And that's what it's about. The godfathers of violence. You see, the problem with this is, if you were some... Godfather, sitting down to work out what you were going to spend your life doing. If it's about crime and making money by selling porn or extortion or whatever, the basic proposition is, if I do that, I'll get a myself. 
But if you look at the senior people in the terrorist organisations for much of the time, not in the later stages, come back to that a little bit, for most of the time, most they didn't make a whole load of money out of it. They didn't get a whole load of personal benefits out of it. The majority of them were actually, in that sense, particularly on the Republican side, a bit puritanical about all of this. They really believed in the revolution. They believed in the change. They weren't doing it for personal benefit. If you're a, what we endearingly in Northern Ireland call, ordinary decent criminals, if you were an ordinary decent criminal, you know, the tragedy for you was getting caught. Because then what was the point of the whole exercise? The whole thing was to try to make something better for yourself. But if you were in one of the terrorist organizations, you being caught was not the ultimate tragedy. The failure of the campaign was the ultimate tragedy. If it meant that you had to sacrifice yourself, well, you weren't necessarily a suicide bomber. That never really caught on in Northern Ireland. But you were prepared to die for what you believed and to die for the cause. And in the case of some people, as you well know, they actually put themselves on a hunger strike and carried it the whole way through until they did die. Now, that's not the action of somebody that's doing it for their own benefit. If you commit a crime for your own benefit, you don't go out telling everybody, we did it. But if you commit a terrorist crime, one of the first things you do is you give a warning and say, we have planted a bomb. And if it goes off and kills people, it's us that did it. If you take people from a terrorist organization and you put them in prison, the way they behave and how they survive in prison is different from people who are only there for ODC crimes. And actually, there were differences between the loyalist paramilitaries and the republican paramilitaries. Really quite interesting differences, which relate a bit, we'll not get time to talk about it, but relate a bit to the current business of the flags problem. Because there's a cultural difference between the Protestant community and the Catholic community, particularly at a working class level. In the Catholic community, education for quite a long time was a valued thing because it was a way out of the problems. And so working class or middle class people in the Catholic community valued education. So when the provost ended up in, in the maze, they came out with open university degrees. In the unionist community, it was quite different. Middle class, they valued education, but working class and unemployed loyalists didn't. In fact, they had a real antipathy to education. One of the UVF fellows said to me one day, any of you fellow down our street with spectacles and a, a library ticket gets beaten up. Why? Because you start getting smart and asking too many questions. You don't like that around here. You do what you're told. And in a way, that was part of the way the whole community was, was operating. So now you've got loyalists, young people, with, with no educational achievement or attainment, no sense of self-esteem, a feeling that the other guys are getting everything, and they're angry and frustrated, and they're reacting out on the streets now. And I said to you that when the provost went into the maze, they came out with open university degrees. When the loyalists went into the maze, they came out with big muscles and tattoos. Because for them, it wasn't about understanding, it wasn't about strategizing, it was about using force. And that's now a real problem, because force is not where it's at anymore. We've got to a different kind of a point. So, if we're not, if we're not convinced that the godfathers... Oh, and there's another thing about that, by the way. If you were a godfather and you look around at the success rate of terrorist campaigns, it's pitifully low. Very few terrorist campaigns in the last 30 or 40 years. Take it away from the post-colonial period. 
when you had majority populations that were oppressed, revolted and took control. But take it away from that. Most of the terrorist campaigns in the last 30 or 40 years have been a failure. In addition to which, the people who have suffered the most have not been the people the terrorists are attacking. The people who have suffered most are the community from which the terrorists came. If you go to Northern Ireland, for example, more Catholics suffered at the hands of the IRA than at the hands of the British Army. And more loyalists suffered from loyalist paramilitaries than from the IRA. Or, if you go to Nepal, the Maoists were trying to represent the best interests of the people. But the Maoists oppressed the people even more than the Royal Nepalese Army. Or if you look at Shining Path in Peru, the number of people that Shining Path damaged and the way they treated people was horrendous. But there's no doubt that they started off, Gutzman and so on, started off from a proposition of, we are here to better our people because historically, although they are 80% of the population, the 20% who represent the descendants of the Spaniards, they're the ones that run everything. They're the ones that have the money. They're the ones that have the power. Nothing we've done has ever changed that. Therefore, we've got to embark on a campaign that's going to change that fundamentally. And so they did. But the people that suffered the most were the 80% of the people that they were trying to represent. And, I, and it was very interesting because... It, certainly there were people who were disappeared, probably about 70,000 who were disappeared by the Peruvian army. But, but whenever that was over, the ordinary people, they didn't want to know, but they didn't want to celebrate whenever the remains of those people were on earth. I, I remember being there um, um, up in Ayacucho when the, the remains of the first seven people were recovered and there was a big funeral for them and the local mayor came along and so none of the ordinary people wanted to see why? They didn't feel there was anything to celebrate at all. They felt that they'd had a really bad time. And that's the case for most of them. So, if you think, oh, there are these godfathers, and they have this great strategy, and they're doing it because they've worked out that this is a good strategic move. They're not very powerful, but they can use this strategically to change things, and it's really a thought-through strategy. That doesn't make any kind of sense either. So how do we try to understand this? Well, when, when you're growing up and developing, you move away from instinctual capacities, reflex capacities, where you respond reflexly, without consideration, without inhibition, you move to a point where your reaction to things is more thought through, more inhibited, we're considering whether or not this is the right reaction to make and so on and so on. And it's a complex development. You can watch it in children growing up and it's very interesting when you begin to see it in that way and you see how they change and develop and move on. And of course we know that when something goes wrong you can fall back to that previous kind of behaviour. Something physical happens, you have a stroke for example some of those reflexes which have not been around for quite some time reappear the stroke didn't create the reflex, it simply took away and disabled the inhibition and the reflex returned and, and sometimes people go back to the way they have behaved in the past sometimes it's, it's, it's quite innocuous you know, I, was, uh, I was at a medical reunion doctors are great for getting back together after you know, 5 years and 10 years and 20 years of 
60 or 70 years like Simon, you know, they, they get together and, and they regress back into being medical students again. You know, some, one of the members starts to give a lecture and they start making paper darts and throwing them up. It's extraordinary. And we all do it a little bit when we go on holiday or maybe if we have a few drinks and so on. But that's a relatively benign kind of regression. Why? Because you can come back out of it again. But sometimes people regress back and they, they're not able to come back out of it in the way that they behave. And, and sometimes, as individual people, when you see this, you see them being disturbed in themselves. There's another kind of disturbance, however, which is not moving back chronologically in your development. It's a different kind of thing. It's, it's, it's regressing back or moving back in terms of your, your kind of consciousness. And this is more like what it's like to be psychotic. When you are sitting here, reasonably alert, although if I go on too much longer like this, you probably won't be quite so alert, but reasonably alert, and thinking about what's happening, your mind thinks in a particular kind of way. But when you go to sleep at night, your mind doesn't stop working. You continue to think, but it's a different kind of thinking. You dream. And the rules in that kind of thinking are quite different. You know, if something frightening is happening, and I close the door and I'm awake, it keeps the bogeyman out. But if I close the door and I'm asleep and I'm dreaming, the monster can come through the door. Or if I think about this person here, I can see she's a person. And she's one person. She's not a whole lot of people. But if I dream tonight, one person can represent bits of a whole lot of people. Or a whole lot of people may represent different aspects of one person. Now this is interesting because when a person brings you their dreams, they don't really understand what it is that's going on. But if you understand these kinds of things, you can sometimes piece things together. And then you put it back to them and they go, oh, I didn't recognize that you understood that. Actually, I didn't realize it myself. But the thing is, you can wake it up. If you want to know what it would be like to be psychotic, it would be like being in that kind of dream thinking and not able to wake it up. You're trapped in it. You're held in it. You're not free to resume your life. So, sometimes it seems to me these kinds of psychological changes in principle not all the detailed symptoms and so on, but in principle, can also apply to communities. And a lot of the kind of work that I did when I was working politically in trying to understand what was happening in my community and then going and looking at other communities that got in difficulties was to try to understand how far these kinds of disturbances that we observe were not about good communities and bad communities. And they weren't about crazy people and insane people. And they weren't fundamentally about nasty leaders and poor innocent followers. They were about communities that fell into disturbance. And in some cases, these communities returned back to the way things have been for them in the past. And historic things began to come forward again. Things that had been hidden or hadn't been apparent or had happened a long time ago and were part of history. Sometimes they get brought back. And sometimes people fall into a kind of way of thinking that was not part of their past experience at all. It was a different kind of disturbance. And these kinds of things can happen when communities come under threat that they feel 
or threat that is actual. So, for example, in this country here, six weeks before the Falklands War, 95% of the population had no idea what the Falklands were. I said it a slightly different way. They didn't know where it was. They didn't know what it was about. They certainly wouldn't have regarded it as important. Two days after the Falklands War, the country as a whole thought that this was worth so much that any amount of blood and treasure could be expended in order to get these back. So something happened to the community at that point, which was quite profound. It was a matter of group psychology. It wasn't thought through and reflected upon. It wasn't craziness of individuals. It was a group reaction that the community fell back into and reacted in various particular kinds of ways. And it's true of all sorts of different aspects of things. Let me give you an example that interests me quite a little bit more. You'll all be aware that Northern Ireland is a place where religious issues are talked about a lot. They're really very important. And of course that's true of a lot of the other areas that we work in, just like the Middle East and so on. You might be a bit more surprised to know that in the early part of the 20th century, before partition, there were some very thoughtful, very creative, progressive theologians in Northern Ireland. <coughs> but as soon as you had the experience of the First World War, the War of Independence, the Civil War, all around the same time, a lot of existential threat being felt by the community, north and south, all of that regressed immediately. There was a huge heresy trial of a very bright young theologian in the early 1920s, and he was, he was acquitted, but it has had a massive effect within the Protestant community amongst clergy for the last 90 years. People always say, you've got to be very careful. And if people regress back into the kind of religious thinking that you will probably associate with somewhere like Dr. Facebook. Fundamentalist, loud, aggressive, actually quite frightened underneath. And it seems to me that that's the kind of thing that you get in communities under threat. The way they think about things politically, psychologically, sociologically, religiously, regresses back into protecting themselves against something they don't necessarily know what it is, looking for certainty about things that you can't be certain about, and it gets held like that, and it can be like that for decades. So the proposition I'm kind of working on at the moment is, if you can remove the existential threat that the group feels by something like the Good Friday Agreement and creating new institutions and improving the relationships in these islands, can it become possible for people to think more creatively again, to be free to think those kinds of thoughts? Who knows? That's another kind of proposition. But the main proposition I want to put to you is that when communities are under threat, they regress back into disturbed hearing. Let me give you, and I'll finish just in a couple of minutes, but let me give you a sort of simple way of looking at it. Because as I said earlier on, the symptoms or the phenomena that you observe in group psychology and in group regressions is not identical to what you see in patients who follow with illnesses of various kinds. Not very long ago, Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, 
was interviewed after he had stood down as chairman, interviewed by, by Congress, Congressional Committee. And he said, you know, I'm really, really shocked. I believed, absolutely believed, and operated on the basis that the market was a rational instrument whereby corporations would act in the best interests of themselves and their shareholders. That was the basis on which we worked. It is now clear to me that that is not true. And if that is not true, I don't understand how to deal with all of this. That was a very honest thing for him to say. So it's very frightening because some of them never thought that it was a rational instrument. To me, it was always an emotional instrument. People follow the market this way and that as crowds, not as rational thinkers. Let me put it this way. The rational actor notion, which was not just about the market. This is the way international politics was conducted. That, the, that people were rational actors, that other politicians and country leaders were rational actors who operated on what they perceived to be in the best social, economic interests and power interests of their country and their community. I don't think that's true. I think it is true of some people and some communities some of the time. But it's also clear to me that many groups of people act as devoted actors, not rational actors, who are committed to what I would call sacred values. I don't mean religious values. I mean values that are more important to them than even life itself. So the life of my child is a sacred value. If you suggest to me that it's worth this amount of money, I'll slap you in the face. One of my colleagues did a piece of work in the Middle East, looking at Palestinians, especially, and said, okay, I want you to give me the answer to this. And this would people from a whole lot of different levels. You're not going to get right of return to what is now called Israel, but you'll get some money. What's your reaction? Question number two. You're not going to get right, right of return, but you're going to get a shed load of money. Okay. Question number three. You're not going to get right of return, but the state of Israel is going to say, we really appreciate the terrible pain and distress that you've been through because of how we've conducted things. What's your reaction? But none of it was a surprise to me because of the kind of community I come from. But I'll tell you what the answers were to this piece of research. Question number one. You won't get right of return, but you'll get money. Anger. You won't get right of return, but you get a shed load of money. Even more anger. You're not going to get right of return, but the state of Israel is going to say, we understand that he and your people have been gone through because of what we've done. That is a basis for a conversation. Now, for some of that myself coming from our part of the world, this is completely unsurprised. Why the devil did they need to do any research for that? It's obvious. It wasn't obvious to the people in the White House. They assumed that if people weren't satisfied with this response and you give them three times as much money, it would make it easier. Rather than, do you think I'm a prostitute? Do you think you can buy me off? You need to go so far away. Because when the Prime Minister here, Harold Wilson, talked about loyalists in Northern Ireland and called them spongers because they were only interested in Britain for the money that they could get, what happened? They reacted against him, they went out in strike, they put little sponges in their lapels, and they brought down the partial acceptance. 
So it's true of all of us. There are some things in certain circumstances that make us devoted actors, not rational actors. And we operate on different sets of principles that are important to us. Important enough for us in some cases to die for them. And that may seem crazy if you're not part of that devoted actor group. But it doesn't seem crazy when you are. It seems like the essence of being human. More than just a computer. More than just a program. Well, I come from a Presbyterian background, but my father was a Presbyterian minister. I've been political life for many, many years, and I've spent my time now in the House of Lords, where we have long debates. So, from a genetic point of view, from the case of early environment, and from my current situation, I could go on talking for a considerable period of time. <laughs> but you've been very, very good, and very kind, and I think it might be much better to stop now and engage in a little bit of conversation in the hope that certainly some of the things that Deirdre's saying and perhaps some of the things that I've said might provoke some questions and answers. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much for very interesting presentations. Okay, we have some time now for some questions. Um, when you ask your question, please... Uh, introduce yourself and uh, if you could try and keep, keep make your question quite short and not going for a, a long um, uh, discussion that would be fantastic um, I would just like to ask a couple of questions to start us off um, listening to your talk Deirdre it, it makes me think of some of the contradictions that are at work with um, counterinsurgency in particular I mean, here you have the military as an institution um, and the state devoting a lot of time and effort resources into reducing into training soldiers reducing their inhibitions to kill and so forth and yet counterinsurgency requires them to be put into situations where they're essentially dealing with communities in a very in-your-face routine way and it seems to me that there's a fundamental contradiction at work there. On the one hand they're being trained to be killers uh, for combat and on the other hand they're being put into situations where often the level of combat is very low or residual, it's very sporadic, Could be, of course that makes it very stressful, even more stressful perhaps than regular combat but um, Essentially, their main points of contact are usually civilians, and um, I'm not really sure how you can square that circle. I'm, I don't know whether you have some ideas that come out of your research in terms of policy implications. You know, is it a matter of dealing with this subgroup? I mean, do you want to get rid of that subgroup in the military? In which case, it would be about you know recruitment processes and so on. On the other hand, that subgroup may be the ones that are the actual, you know, the best killers that you would want in regular combat, not in dealing with communities, you see? So there's a kind of contradict, a lot of contradictions there. And for John, um, uh, uh, yeah. I, our 
terrorists, insurgents, whatever, distinctive people. You know, are they special people? Because, after all, not everyone becomes a terrorist. You know, you mentioned David Trimble. Uh, and, you know, I can think of many people um, from my background where, who, you know, joined the IRA or whatever uh, because something happened or for political reasons. Uh, you know, lots of different kinds of motivations. But, you know, uh, not everyone is motivated into joining an organization uh, by the the same event or even by the same ideological commitment. So there is clearly something different at work. Even people from the same family, some might join, some may not. And they might have exactly the same or very similar um, background conditions at work. So what is it? I mean, do you have any ideas? I mean, we, I know that there is very little research on this. I mean, we don't really know. It's obviously very difficult to go into you know, focus groups amongst terrorist organizations, whatever it is, to find out these things. But um, uh, do you have any ideas about what makes them distinctive? You know, who joins, why do they join, and why do people not join from the same kind of circumstances? And also, do the organizations themselves, to what extent they would have some kind of screening process? Uh, clearly, they do, but, you know, is it the same as in the, the counterinsurgents? You know, are they interested in, you know, reducing resistance to killing and that kind of thing, or is there something different at work? Would you like me to start? Yeah. Um, I suppose the first thing is I'm talking about, um, I suppose when I'm talking specifically about the risk factors amongst those who join the military, I'm really talking about infantry regiments. And there is a great spread of backgrounds. You know, the military is the largest employer in the UK. So we are talking about, because I'm asked to talk about violence, we're talking about potentially a subgroup. And also I'm talking about training in in the skills that they need to cope in combat. But of course, there's a lot of other training, massive campaigns in terms of hearts and minds and all of these things that we hear about, um, the skills that they need going into um, counterinsurgency operations like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, more than that, uh, having not been in the military myself, um, I, I'm not so qualified to necessarily talk about the specifics of the training, but to say that they're just trained in aggression and combat would be wrong. The difficulty is, of course, that they do all get that training and it's trying to switch off and, and adapt to when they need those skills and when they don't. Um, and, of course, there are different regiments within the military that are used for different operations. They have different skills, different background risk factors, and that's probably something that we need to take into consideration. Um, your comment about pre-screening, what my research is really highlighting is should these people with a high propensity to violence be screened out of the military well I think we would all recognise that that might just leave us with the military of officers which might not be particularly um, fun it may not function in the way that we would want it to um, and so I don't think that's what as a result of my research we would be proposing um, it's more about if the skills that these guys have when they join up are necessary at a certain time, what can be done to help them readapt um, either in, in the conflict zones or when they come back into their own communities. There's quite a lot of work that is being done to try and help them readapt those skills that they need in a combat situation to cope with life back at home. Um, yeah. I think I, if I might pick up that question and segue into my own um, I think you're right. I think there are internal inconsistencies and contradictions, you know, about 
creating a body of people that can go out and do things that would not be acceptable in civil life and then expect them to come back into civil life again and not have any kind of emotional difficulties about it. Um, and I think there are problems. And I think there are some of those things that may well be fundamental problems that may not be able to be easily dealt with. I came across this in a very different context. I was asked to go and, and see how to help people working in a hospice. Because a lot of people were having breakdowns of various descriptions and also a lot of difficulties with the management. And what became clear to me was that there's a, it's very, very intense emotional work working in a hospice. Everybody who could in, by definition, dies. You see them at the extreme of life. You bond very heavily with them because of the extreme. And then they die. And then there's another person in the bed. And you do it again and again and again. And you get something akin to an emotional march fracture. Because this is not the normal way of having relationships. And so the recommendation I made for them was that nobody should come into that work and stay for more than three or four years. So you only give them short-term contracts. And, and if they're going to stay, they then go off into some different kind of work, into teaching or administration or whatever. The problem is, it's a sort of gilded cage because it's such exciting, fulfilling, valuable, important work. People don't necessarily want to leave it. But their marriages are breaking down, they're falling ill emotionally and physically and so on. So, so that's one policy proposition I made in that case was that these people shouldn't stay too long in this. In the military situation, I think it might be the opposite. I think it may very well be that some of the kind of people that you need to do these kinds of things, actually it'd be far better to keep them there for quite a long period of time and not be bringing in a whole bunch more people. And they may be able to manage. And once they get a bit older to the point where they're not actually able to do this anymore, when they start going back out, they have matured a little bit in various kinds of ways and they may actually be able to, to manage better. So I think there are policy propositions. I don't for a minute think that ethical trading and stuff like that is going to do any good whatsoever because it's not dealing with the right thing. It's dealing with stuff up here and the problem is down here. So I don't, I don't see that. But I think there are things uh, that might be worth thinking about and then, you know, audit it and see is that true or does it not work or, or whatever else. Different people becoming terrorists. Well, I think all the evidence, not just from stuff I've done, but much more importantly from what a whole bunch of other people have done, is there isn't some kind of personality characteristic of somebody that becomes a terrorist. There are, as you say, there are diff lots of different reasons why particular individuals become involved. And you can take that individual and you can trace back their personal history and you can find an explanation for why they ended up there. But if you took a whole population of people, you couldn't screen out the ones that would end up as terrorists. Let me take a very simple example. People who are sexually abused. A bunch of people who are sexually abused end up as abusers. Another bunch of them end up working for Dr. Bernardo's. We don't really quite understand why it is that some people, we have some thoughts, but we don't really know why some people end up repeating the abuse on somebody else, and other people end up with a, as a reaction formation that enables them to be very helpful. And other people just get on with life. And they seem to have been able to digest it in some kind of way. And we don't really, we don't really understand that terribly well. But the idea, which is a kind of home office, FBI, security service uh, notion that you could identify people who are going to end up as terrorists and then you make sure you deal with them before they do anything, is a fantasy. It's a very dangerous kind of myth and fantasy. Um, do the organizations weed people out? Absolutely they do. There's a notion that these organizations go around recruiting people, and some of them do. 
But the successful ones don't recruit people. The young people enlist in their thousands. And what they do is they decide which of them are going to, you know, if it's, you know, if it's Hamas or Hezbollah, and some young fellow comes along and says, I want to enlist this. I want the 70 virgins. You're out. That's not an agenda item. That's not what this is about at all. So, yes, they do. They are careful about it. Now, even military organizations and police services and all sorts of organizations with professional capacities for screening people don't get it right. So how on earth one might, might one expect that paramilitary organizations operating in secret and also are going to always get it right? But some of them get it right much more often than the ones with professional psychologists because they operate a kind of gut street level. Well, you know, I knew his brother or his father or whatever. He was never any good. He was always trouble and fighting with everybody. So we're not going to have him in. Uh, and, so, but, and then, of course, you have a whole other agenda now, which is people enlisting through the internet to do things where they never will meet the people involved. You know, the guys that did the Madrid bombing uh, were a whole bunch of people and some of them were jail and they met up with each other and some of them were young fellows who were going on the internet and <coughs> discovering that well some imam somewhere had said wouldn't be a good idea to have a bomb before the ele- election and that would take the Spanish out of the of the uh, of the Iraq war uh, which it did um, and, and they just kind of got together and, and no, none of them went off to Afghanistan to trade or anything of that kind of thing so they do have these screening uh, things and they do watch it and uh, but they don't know any more than the rest of us, and we're all kind of at the end of the stage. Okay, so let's have some questions. Uh, start back here. Yes? Yeah. Um, very quickly, I find that absolutely fascinating. My own background is uh, I, was, um, I was a student here at OC 10 years ago, and then I joined the army, and I uh, went to uh, Iraq and then Afghanistan, uh, very close up towards, and then I went back to our base in Northern Ireland. Um, what I'd like to ask you, it's sometimes more than about the group and the organisation, because I think just as much as the individual groups are back at all, I think the organisations do as well. And it almost felt still being within that, that team, that organisation, that it hadn't really gone away. And I was wondering how much of your research or your thoughts would be on whether or not soldiers coming back from a very, very tense period and still being together, stuck in a military environment, uh, whether that's. Uh, Okay, I'll take two or three questions. Yes? My name is Anthony Abadem, student from London Metropolitan University. I've got two questions. The first one is The first question is with regards to suicide, you spoke about suicide and said that it's not really that rampant in England, but in America there's a high population. And I was wondering, uh, would you agree that it has something to do with uh, the availability of uh, guns uh, as, uh, as uh, compared to India, where you really get a lot of them? Uh, that's the first question. Uh, the next question is, uh, uh, and uh, my question is, uh, it would be regards to uh, terrorism, but uh, it's uh, uh, with regards to uh, my country, uh, which is Nigeria, and uh, we tend to have a uh, reset of the past uh, few years now, we've been having a uh, uh, this uh, Boko Haram, you know, which is a uh, uh, Western education is uh, forbidden. Yeah. You, you, when you were giving your lecture, you, you, you spoke about uh, forms 
going into uh, this sort of uh, terrorist organizations and how long they stretch for. Is this something that you want to throw more light on with regards to this book of Ram, or is this something that maybe you want to do? Okay, and I'll take this one again. Yeah. With the scarf. relationships uh, following return from deployment and following leaving the military actually and whether or not those who maintain their military links do better than those that reintegrate back into their communities they I guess break their links to a certain extent with the military and, and that is what we find so those who don't maintain such strong military links I guess to the exclusion of developing other relationships don't do as well from a mental health perspective so I don't know if that helps to... It was more the fact that, as an organisation, we kept behaving as a force in Afghanistan. Yeah. Very well. uh, and so you'd see a lot of difficulty in folks saying, why are we being treated like this? Why are we in Afghanistan? And we couldn't get ahead of that. And so I just wondered, that was one of the organisations behaving, you know, not to I mean, certainly from a, from a clinical perspective, um, the guys that I see find that either when they leave that organisation, to a certain extent it provided them with a sense of belonging, but perhaps their behaviours weren't quite as healthy. Uh, the culture of drinking in the military, the, the, the attitude to, to how they behave, perhaps didn't have such a positive impact on their well-being. So they try to reintegrate into society, but then that sense of a loss of belonging leads to just an equal sense of loss when they need. So it's, it's almost as if they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, really. I mean, I think all of us as individuals tend to uh, continue on doing things whether they're appropriate or not, and communities and groups and organisations do that even more so. And, you know, if you set up a committee... Um, it, it can continue to function when the purpose of the committee long since died away because as long as you've got, you know, minutes of the last meeting, matters arising, 
personal and apologies date of the next meeting. There you have enough for a meeting and you can go on like that for years. So you're quite right, groups continue to function. Now, slight, I mean, there are rationalisations made, for example, when military regiments come back and they have their downtime in Northern Ireland, then the rationalisation that can sometimes be made is, do you actually still need to be careful here? There's dissidents out there that might do things. Look what happened at Mazarine Barracks. When guys didn't continue to attend to things. Um, but I think much of that is a rationalisation. I think you're right. The other side of groups is, if their experience was a bad experience, they sometimes refuse to learn from that experience. So, for example, talking to some military folk about why on earth was the United States making the same mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan that they made in Vietnam? I mean, for goodness sake, guys. And the answer was, Vietnam was a bad scene. Nobody wanted to talk about the lessons from Vietnam because it was so painful. It was an enormous narcissistic blow to the U.S. military. So lessons that could have been learned weren't. So that's the kind of flip side of it. That's not not, not learning from the difficult experience. But your observation, you know, is, in general terms, absolutely right. The, the question that was asked about guns and availability, I don't know whether you have any stuff on that because I don't have any information about about the, the modalities of suicide in the States amongst military people. Well, I, I can't comment necessarily amongst military people, but certainly suicides as a result of gun use is much higher than the States, as are murders as a result of gun use. I mean, we could have a, a discussion about the pros and cons of the... Um, legitimate use of guns in the States, but I think possibly a, a more important point to make is the healthcare system within the States, and whilst there is a veteran affairs um, healthcare uh, structure available, um, about 50% or 45% of veterans don't avail of that, so probably a more important um, issue in the, the, the problem of suicide is availability of healthcare. There were two other questions asked. One was about whether or not the problem for our soldiers and resilience nowadays is that they're not devoted actors where perhaps they were you know, during the Second World War or maybe in the First World War. I think there is a very interesting question there. You know, People have a very different attitude to society and the purpose of themselves. And, their, and one interesting thing, a guy who was a veteran of the, of the Vietnam War lost his legs in the Vietnam War, set up a veterans organization, a voluntary one, and he came to me because he was absolutely furious that the American Medical Association was stopping asking people that had, that had a diagnosis of PTSD whether or not they agreed with the purpose of the war. Because for him, this was a really important research issue. Was it not a possibility that there was a higher incidence of PTSD or other things in people who felt that actually what they were doing wasn't justified in the first place? And certainly at home, I would have noticed people who had been formerly in the police um, who after the troubles started to break down because they said, what the heck was all of this about? Why did we go through all of this for 20 years and the guys who were fighting ending up in government and we don't even have jobs anymore? So this whole question of purpose and meaning I think is really, really important. Uh, and, and the business of Devodra, people do not believe about their country and their society in the West the way they did in the past or the way people in other places do. And on the question of, of uh, Nigeria and the situation there. I think it's a very complex situation there because down in the south, you have a whole difficulty with the oil companies and whether they're treating local people properly and a mixture of criminality and representation of local people. And then up north, 
you've got all the issues of the Islamist groups that are spreading right across the whole of, of North Africa and the reaction you know, against what happened in Libya. And so this is a very complicated picture in Nigeria. And one of the things you also always have to keep in mind is every country has its history. This gets forgotten remarkably about nowadays. It's all about what's happened in the last two or three years. Nigeria has a quite long history of internal struggles between North and South and between various important groups with the Igbos and others and so on. So there's also a history within Nigeria that needs to be taken account of, as well as the issue of the oil companies and the Islamists in the North. So it's a complicated one. Okay, some more questions, yes, in the far corner there? Yeah. 
intervention involves. It's an educational tool um, of some sort. Um, but he has looked at self-reported kind of ethical transgressions in, in a war zone um, prior to treatment and post-treatment and he has found that it has reduced the self-reporting of these. Now of course self-reporting of anything um, is not, you know, it can be questioned but that's the only research into this area that I'm aware of at the moment so it might be worth you you having a read of that paper? Hoge, H-O-G-E. Um, I think the next, next question was the domestic violence one. Um, and you asked if I knew anything about the levels of domestic violence within military personnel in the UK. And that's the problem. Actually, at the minute, we don't. We do know from the States that... Um, domestic, they call it intimate partner violence there, IPV, um, 
they see a link between combat experience and increased IPV on return from deployment. They've actually done quite a lot of work into it in the States, and it just hasn't really happened in the UK, and that's something that I'm really wanting to look into. Um, Sexual violence, again, it's something that there's information on in the States, but not something that we know very much about. In terms of my criminal justice uh, research here, the, the numbers of, of sexual offences, whilst we did see that it increased post-deployment, the numbers are too small to do any sort of meaningful analysis with and too small to place any um, uh, reliance on. Um, females within our sample, too few in number to do any significant kind of analysis on, and, and, and that's the problem, really. If you're standing up and, and making some statement or some interpretation of your results, you have to be confident um, that they're fairly reliable and with small numbers of females, um, we can't do that at the moment. Let me just take, uh, there were a number of questions there, but let me just pick up two, and I, I, I confess I didn't quite get the gist of all of them. Um, yeah. w- one on the question of terrorism. Um, I said when I was starting off that I was not using terrorism as some kind of moral terminology. Uh, now, to press it a little bit further, for me, and people use these things in different ways, terrorism is a very specific tactic. It's a triangular tactic. The victim of the violence is not the target. So in other words, what you do is, this person here has a responsible government or authority. You want to show up the responsible government or authority as being unable or unwilling or uncaring or whatever. So you attack this person because this person then undermines the position of the responsible authority. And in turn, the the authority feels impotent and reacts overly strongly against you, which actually undermines them morally further. So it's a complex, triangular tactic which is used. It's used in all sorts of places, sometimes political, religious violence, all sorts of... But it's a specific tactic which is used by a bunch of people who don't have the resources to engage in a direct war. Sometimes that tactic is used for period of time, and then it's rejected in favour of a more formal insurgency because they begin to develop a material that enables that to be possible, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, But it's not... There's no evidence at all when you look at the people who are involved that it's something about their personality or any of these kinds of things. It's it's very much what happens when people find themselves in a certain set of circumstances, particularly where they have a community which feels that it has been massively disrespected and often humiliated, treated deeply unfairly and unjustly, and they have not been able to find any other way of addressing it. Then that's the kind of context where people regress into this kind of violence, which, as I said earlier, does as much harm to their own community as to anybody else. But it's you know it's a complex area of things. It's not something where there's, there's simple, easy bits of terminology. On the question of the domestic violence, if I could just inject something else in, because I think part of the question was, did it come from their military training, or was it something about the experience that they had? Well, one of the things that's been quite interesting is to become clear about the degree of domestic and sexual violence amongst the families of paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. So there were quite a number of young people who were killing themselves in places like North Belfast. Actually, there's been quite a lot in East Belfast that hasn't been reported very much in the last time. And I started trying to explore it, and I asked the police, were they investigating these? And said, oh, she doesn't understand. Suicide's not a crime anymore, you know. I said, yeah, but the reason why they killed themselves might be crime. 
the reason was because some of my colleagues started looking at some of these kids and discovered they were killing themselves because they were under massive threat and abuse by senior people in paramilitary organizations. And who do you go to? If you come from that community and you come from that area, you're stuck with this horrible violence happening to you. And what has become clear is there's a great deal of social chaos and sexual violence and physical violence in those communities. In fact, it even became apparent recently rather publicly in Jerry Adams' own family, for example. And it's true in the loyalist side as well. That tends to suggest to me it's not particularly about military training. It's about what happens when aggression is required to have free reign in certain circumstances and it becomes difficult to set the boundaries in place. And give you one final example, a clinical example, of a guy who came to me quite a number of years after he'd been involved in the loyalist, loyalist paramilitary guy. Pretty nasty one. And they'd done a lot of killing of people. And getting their hands dirty doing it. And he came along with panic attacks. And it was very interesting because as we worked our way through it, it became clear that the panic attack started because one day he got really angry with his girlfriend. And he suddenly became aware that given what he had done before, he could have killed her. And it set him into a panic. And once it became possible to explore all of that and to recognize that that's where all of this was coming from and that he feared that he might do to her what he had done to some Catholic people, so the panic attacks disappeared and he didn't have any problems with it, with it anymore. He was able to manage it. But the point was, he was a guy who had enough in him to resist acting on the impulse. Some other people would not have resisted. They would simply have repeated the violence. So I think it's not so much to do with the military training. I think it's to do with what happens when the normal human inhibitions and boundaries get lifted in certain circumstances. And what happens when you indulge in that and the excitement it creates and the fear it creates and a whole bunch of things it creates inside. And a lot of these guys will come to you with trouble and they, I don't know what you find, but some of them come and they just don't want to talk about their experiences at all. And they don't want to talk to anybody about them because once they talk about them, it starts making them real and that, that's really, really frightening. So I think it's more to do with the experiences and something about the problems it creates for, for people because we're human beings. We're over our time already, I'm afraid. Um, I, I think you just quickly, wanted to yeah. answer the... Sorry, I PTSD forgot to answer question. your question about PTSD, that there are very high rates in the US. and they're, Well, actually, the figures for the UK range between 4 and 7%. They're not nearly on the level um, that we do see in the US. And there are lots of different possible theories for that, whether it's to do with the level of combat exposure or actually is it more to do with levels of diagnosis of PTSD in the States and that perhaps... Um, in the US they're, they're more ready to diagnose PTSD is it to do with people reporting PTSD symptoms for secondary gain to get health care within the Department of Veteran Affairs health care system there's lots of different theories for that but we don't have the same level of, of problems here ok I think we'll have to draw proceedings to a close thank you very much to both our speakers <laughs>